National elections in Indonesia, a fierce Duterte critic granted bail, and Vietnam's climate plans ahead of COP28. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Jafet Kitsan, and today is November 30th, 2023. On today's show... Well, really what this is, is this is a fundamental shift uh, at the strategic level. This is a level of strategic coordination that we've not really seen over the past two and a half years. And crucially, the Myanmar military is, is increasingly overstretched. It is bleeding from a thousand cuts. That was Lucas Myers, senior associate for Wilson Center's Southeast Asia program, who chatted with Greg Poling and Alina Noor to discuss the latest developments in Myanmar. I'm looking forward to that interview. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have Amanda Greenberger in the studio. Amanda works with the International Government Affairs Team covering the Indo-Pacific at Lockheed Martin. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Jaffet. Of course. Had a good Thanksgiving? Yeah, I had a great Thanksgiving, and the food coma was so strong that my Black Friday turned more into a Cyber Monday. (laughs) I get where you're coming from. I could barely get up on Friday, but I pulled it off anyway. (laughs) Good for you. It was nearly impossible for me to get up that morning. Speaking of Herculean tasks, let's move on to our first news headline, elections in the world's third largest democracy, Indonesia. On Tuesday, November 28th, candidates for the upcoming presidential election officially launched their campaigns just 75 days before Election Day. Three major candidates have thrown their hats in the ring, hoping to succeed incumbent President Joko Widodo. All three showed up to a campaign pre-event the day before, signing an integrity pact that committed them to a peaceful election process. Anias Baswedan, an academic and former governor of Jakarta, began his campaign in the nation's capital while his running mate, Mohamed Iskandar, campaigned in East Java. Ganjar Panoa, former governor of Central Java, began his campaign in Indonesia's easternmost city, Maraka, in South Papua province. His running mate, Mafud Mde, started in the westernmost city, Sabang, in Aceh province. Prabowo Subianto, the controversial defense minister, former military general, and former son-in-law of dictator Suharto, did not begin his campaign on Tuesday and stuck to his official duties. His running mate and Jokowi's son, Gibran Rakabuming, similarly carried on with his duties as mayor of Solo. They plan to start campaigning on Friday, December 1st. Prabowo has dominated the pre-election polls lately, zooming ahead of his nearest competitor, Ganjar. Anies, on the other hand, has remained well behind both. Yeah, recent surveys show Prabowo with over 40% support, almost at the 50% threshold necessary to avoid a runoff election. Right. Despite some public and internal backlash, it turns out that his decision to run with Jokowi's son, announced earlier this month, has largely been a success. How could it not have been? Jokowi's public approval rating is over 70%. True. But you would have thought that some of his supporters would be more suspicious of the political maneuvering around Gibran. Well, it may still be too early to tell. Lots can happen over the next 75 days. Moving over to the Philippines for our second news headline. While Indonesia is getting ready for its democratic future, the Philippines has been confronting its liberal past. How do you mean, Jeffett? On Monday, November 13th, former Philippine senator and relentless critic of ex-Philippine president Rodrigo Duterte, Leila de Lima, was released from detention in Muntinlupa City. De Lima's freedom came after more than six years in police custody after she launched a Senate inquiry into Duterte's bloody war on drugs in 2017. Duterte was famous for silencing his critics. Those who protested his anti-drug campaign were often prosecuted for crimes with weak merit, jailed, and in some circumstances found mysteriously dead. You're right. Duterte had little tolerance for those who opposed his leadership. This was especially true in de Lima's case, as she had been a harsh critic of Duterte's anti-drug campaign as far back as 2009 when he was mayor of Davao City and she was chair of the Commission of Human Rights. Duterte ultimately detained de Lima on three charges related to conspiring with convicted drug lords and accepting bribes, accusations that she adamantly denied from the start. Was de Lima ever convicted of such charges? No, 
This is why international human rights groups and Filipino activists have demanded her release for nearly seven years. Leila de Lima was acquitted on two of her three charges and was granted a bail of 300,000 Philippine pesos, which led to her November 13th release. Many of Duterte's witnesses who testified against her even retracted their statements when Duterte's term ended. Oh, wow. Humanitarians around the globe argued that her detention was symbolic of the nation's hostile attitude toward political activists. Delima consistently maintained her innocence. After walking free, she told reporters that she had never lost faith that her inevitable freedom would come. Looks like the tables might turn soon, too. Now that Leila Delima gained her long-deserved freedom, Duterte has been put under investigation by the ICC for crimes against humanity committed during his six-year-long war on drugs. Well, investigation into Duterte's anti-drug campaign is certainly long overdue. Definitely, Jaffet. Speaking of overdue, a plan has recently been made to begin efforts in reducing the use of coal as an energy source in the region. For our last story, we turn to Vietnam. Ahead of the UN Climate Change Conference in Dubai, also known as COP28, Vietnam has been finalizing a resource mobilization plan that would open it up to billions of dollars in loans to reduce its coal use. Vietnam's Prime Minister Pham Minh Chin will attend COP28 from November 30th to December 3rd, with expectations that he would announce a plan there. Officials, speaking anonymously, said that work was still being done on changes to regulatory framework and managing obstacles for investment. A draft released earlier this year listed over 400 projects that could potentially be funded by the G7 and multilateral institutions, including 272 infrastructure projects. This makes sense, given that Vietnam has been trying to boost domestic use of renewables and cut dependence on coal. Coal accounted for 31% of Vietnam's installed capacity in 2020. The government aims to reduce this to 20% by 2030. It is also committed to stop developing coal-fired power plants after 2030. But it's still not certain that Vietnam will take up the G7 funds on offer, given that the communist government has historically been reluctant to accept foreign loans. True. Looks like we'll have to keep an eye out for any further energy developments in Vietnam. I'm sure they'll be electrifying. And those are the headlines. Thanks, Amanda, for stopping by. Up next, Greg and Alina's interview with Lucas Myers. So stay tuned. Welcome back to another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. My name's Greg Poland with CSIS, joined by my co-pilot, Alina Nor of Carnegie. Howdy, Alina. Hi, Greg. Hi, everyone. And today we've got a special guest, Lucas Myers. Lucas is a senior associate at the Wilson Center's Asia program. Hi, Lucas. Hi, Greg. Nice to be here. So Lucas is here to talk about the crisis in Myanmar, which we haven't addressed in a few months. Uh, Lucas wrote a piece last week that I think was very well received for War on the Rocks called The Myanmar Military is Facing Death by a Thousand Cuts, which we want to get to in a minute. But to set the scene for listeners who aren't following Myanmar on a day-to-day basis, there's been a lot of attention. I think the sense that perhaps there's been a real watershed in the now two and more than two and a half year running civil war post the February 1st coup. So on October 27th, three of the ethnic armed organizations in Northern Shan state launched what's called operation 1027, marking the, the date of the operation. So this would be the Ta'ang national liberation army, the Arakan army and the Myanmar national democratic Alliance army, also known as the Kokang. And the three launched coordinated assaults on Sittat, Burmese military outposts across northern Myanmar, seizing, at this point, reports are well over 100 or 150 military outposts in the last month, uh, a lot of the key border crossings into China. And then that really seems to have emboldened other ethnic armed organizations and PDFs, the People's Defense Forces, across the country to launch assaults. So we had 
uh, assaults launched by the Kachin Independence Army, which is closely allied with those three. They're all part of another alliance called the Northern Alliance. So the, the Kachin and its affiliated PDFs launched attacks in both Kachin and down in Sagaing region, where most especially they took the first ever uh, district level capital to fall to the resistance. Then on November 11th, the Kareni National Liberation Front over in Kayar Kareni State launched what they called Operation 1111, also named after the date of the operation. Uh, you've had other EAOs in Mandalay and elsewhere launch attacks. And I think maybe most significantly on November 13th, the Arakan Army broke its ceasefire with the Burmese Army in Rakhine State, or Arakan, and renewed its assaults across northern Arakan. So at this point, it seems like the army's facing simultaneous, if not exactly coordinated assaults from every direction, which I suppose gets us to the thousand cuts that you talked about in your article. Why don't you you explain a little bit about the bottom line takeaway of your piece for War on the Rocks? You put it really well, Greg, that this is a countrywide series of offensives, and this is a big deal. Strategically, this is really the first time we're seeing the resistance movement writ large, which you know, as you ran through, there's a variety of actors. I mean, there's, you know, a couple dozen at this point. But really what this is, is this is a fundamental shift uh, at the strategic level. This is a level of strategic coordination that we've not really seen over the past two and a half years. And crucially, the Myanmar military is, is increasingly overstretched. It is bleeding from a thousand cuts. Specifically, it's, it's relied in the last couple of years on air power and heavy artillery to maintain its hold over urban areas and bases. Much of its hold over the rural areas, especially on the periphery, has been challenged by guerrilla attacks uh, stemmed from the resistance and, and the ethnic armed organizations. And crucially, this, it's suffering significant attrition. And, and now that is really coming into fruition for the resistance, and we've seen them now take towns. Several of them at this point, uh, almost 10, I think, towards Northern Shan State, and then there's some in Sagaing. We're even looking at Kaya State, the or Kareni State, the fall of Loika, potentially, in the foreseeable future, which would be the first state capital taken by resistance forces if they can pull it off. My view, I think that seems pretty likely. The ability of the Sitat to respond to this strategically is, is probably limited. I, they don't really have the reserves, the manpower reserves, to be able to respond to all of these fronts at once. They're going to have to pick and choose. Um, and even then, I think they're going to be limited, uh, especially given their battlefield performance at the tactical level has been quite quite poor. Secondly, I think what this, this points to is that although there are huge political challenges and a lot of mistrust between resistance actors, specifically the National Unity Government, which it tends to be Bamar-dominated, and the ethnic armed organizations, that there's a long kind of distrust-filled history behind that. But despite those political challenges that they're working on, militarily, they're coordinating much more effectively. I mean, these operations took time to plan, months from what I'm hearing. And this culmination is, is that they've been able to challenge the military in so many places that it can't redeploy its forces. And I think this is a huge deal. This is strategic level cooperation that the military, it's their greatest fear, essentially, a pan- sort of resistance offensive. And, and now we're seeing that they're, they're panicking. Um, and then finally, I think there's a bit of a debate about this, but, but China plays an interesting role here and they have a very complex policy on Myanmar. And in my view, they're 
somewhat glad to see that the three brotherhood alliance has taken on some of these scam compounds but i think they picked the wrong horse and and we saw this over the past year that they've worked very closely with the junta and stepped up their public engagements partly because i believe they have a narrative that the junta is the only force holding the country together i think that's a misperception and and i think the on the ground what we're seeing is very much saying that the junta is is not be able to hold on uh but beijing likely is is a bit in a strange holding pattern here they've been calling for a ceasefire i don't think that they are overly pleased that now the junta is seeming to really be toppling so lucas i mean there's been some uncertainty over the last year or so since the fighting ramped up about kind of the numbers on on both sides primarily because of the lack of reporters on the ground but also kind of frontline journalism to verify the accuracy of some of those numbers and personnel has anything changed i mean to sort of to bolster your argument in in this piece so obviously it's a huge challenge especially because unlike some other conflicts around the world right now this one is suffering from a lack of good really strong journalism and obviously being based in DC we have to rely on reports from folks who are on the ground and and oftentimes you have to kind of very much hedge your analysis to make sure that it's it's verifiable right but i would point you to the work of Yamil Hain who is one of the best analysts on this and he had some really good open source research and on specifically the Sitat's military strength and he postulates that there's about 70,000 combat capable troops the junta has access to militia that are beyond that right and police and etc but really they're good for their their reliable troops are much smaller than the pre-war estimate of 250,000 or so um and that's largely because of attrition and just failures in recruiting uh i mean the junta is deeply unpopular throughout the country they've not been able to really replace losses generally what you want to do is is really follow that thread and and you can see in terms of the impact right you can see that these towns are falling are falling and then the junta is unable to mount really strong counteroffensives uh, their battalions are under strength from most analysts will argue that they're actually significantly under strength we're talking you know only you know 100 or 120 or so uh men in in a battalion now and and the, those kinds of numbers are just not sustainable for launching a, a massive counterinsurgency campaign throughout the country How much do you assess that there was real coordination among all of these actors? You know that the NUG, the National Union Government, was very quick to jump in online and and in public statements voicing support for Operation Ten Twenty Seven, saying that it was kind of centrally coordinated. Hard to tell how true that is. How much of that is opportunism? Uh, you saw the Brotherhood Alliance. issue multiple statements that its goal here is ultimately the destruction of the military junta and the establishment of a nationwide federal system of government but again they would say that regardless how much are their aims really national and shared with the NUG and other actors versus local and how much do some of these other AOs who have now renewed or launched new offensives how much do you think that they're really coordinating with the Northern Alliance and NUG versus just recognizing that the junta's bleeding now is the time to strike and secure their own in some cases maybe local goals of autonomy so i would say it's it's a very complex picture and there's a lot of motivations likely behind you know operation 1027 however from what i'm hearing seeing i do think this is a level of coordination that's much higher there's no central command right that's actually ordering these things but i do believe there is 
a lot of movement behind the scenes. Folks are talking. I know that the NUG has been engaging regularly with Three Brotherhood Alliance. They have PDFs that they're working very closely with. There was a Kareni, a detachment involved, you know, with the Myanmar National Democratic Alliance Army's forces. And the quickness of the response, you know, a lot of these offensives around the country, to me, within a couple of days or weeks, I mean, you can't, I, I think that points to a level of foreknowledge that this was a long time in the making. Additionally, I do think we're seeing a shift in Three Brotherhood Alliance communication. I mean, for a while, they kind of had maintained a somewhat hands-off approach. They were training a few PDF forces on the sides um, and engaging in a few skirmishes over territory with, with the junta over the past two and a half years. But this statement, I think, is really significant. This seems to put the emphasis on overthrowing the junta fundamentally as the ultimate political objective, not necessarily near term in the sense that we still have a long way to go. But they could have positioned this solely as we are clearing up cybercrime and human trafficking that the Chinese are very upset at. We are simply you know, defending our territory. They could have hedged it in those terms. Instead, they're announcing this much more lofty goal. And I think that the shift here and the reason I, I, I assess this, the ethnic groups have fundamentally lost trust in the junta, right? I mean, the, they, they do not assess that they can really protect their autonomy you know, as long as the junta is is in command in, in Naypyidaw. And so I think there is an incentive there that this is an opportunity. And especially now that the Bamar majority in the country is much more committed than in past instances of, of uprising or resistance to military dominated regimes. This is the fundamental difference here is that Sagaing, Maguey, these regions in central Myanmar are very much traditionally viewed as this is the military's bread and butter. We recruit from here. And now these towns are falling and, and the PDFs are operating much more aggressively in these areas. So, Lucas, I'm curious, how sustainable do you think this, I don't know if it's a strategy, but I guess this phenomenon of a thousand cuts is going to be? Who's funding this? Where are they getting their arms from? Is all of this sustainable? So that's, I think, the question. And I would say, and I've written about this in the past, the junta's long-term strategy is to drag this out and essentially bet that they can outlast the population, right? And that is the fear. However, what we're seeing is initially, in the, especially early in the war in 2021, early 2022, access to weapons was very limited, for, especially for the, for the PDFs. The EAOs, it's a different story. And I'll get to that in a minute. But now there is much more coordination and access to, to weapons specifically provided by some of these EAOs, right? And there is fundamentally, these are much better equipped forces. You can even see this in sort of the, the open source imagery, right? I mean, traditionally, these were the PDFs were, you know, local people standing up and using local hunting homemade weapons. And now they have, you know, much more capable small arms. And Additionally, from the funding side, the NUG in particular has been quite innovative. It's been using sort of online fundraising, auctioning uh, junta facilities and, and houses online and then raising money that way. And, and I would point you to Zachary Abuza's work. He's really he calls it a revenue denial strategy. And that, I think, is really interesting. And they've been very much trying to 
oppose the junta. Additionally, now that their control in rural areas and along major roads has expanded, they've been implementing taxation. And it's actually been somewhat effective in raising funds and denying those to the junta's forces. That governance is, is really key here because now they're trying to transition from guerrilla attacks to more, we're going to govern territory. And, and we're seeing that happen, especially along the periphery where the EAOs are working alongside them. Again, we have a long way to go. And I do worry that this will get bloodier, um, especially as the junta sees no way out, really, and begins to ramp up these bombings uh, from you know airstrikes and what it calls a four-cut strategy, which is essentially just indiscriminate terror attacks against civilians and reprisals. I mean, that's going to be extremely damaging. And I, I do not want to say this lightly. I mean, this is the longer this goes, the more human suffering there will be. A lot of people, you know, tens of thousands have been displaced as a result of Operation 1027. And providing humanitarian aid to those folks is crucial. And, and we need to do a better job as an international community in doing that. But I do think that given the success in the local taxation and, and then acquiring arms through collaboration with these EAOs that oftentimes it's a bit of a interesting black market where some of these groups on the Chinese border, like the United Wall State Army, will get arms from China or manufacture their own and then pass those on to the other EAOs who then have passed them on to PDFs. And so it's a bit of a, a route. But now that that's much more established as a logistics chain, and again, the taxation, I think long term, they've added some sustainability. And again, I think the morale boost of just seeing this gives you breathing space, right? Like you see the junta faltering, you see them losing actual towns. I mean, I think that that adds a huge morale boost and we're seeing that online. So the, if one were to only read Twitter X, the only possible conclusion one could draw is that the regime is going to collapse in a month or two months or six months. And anybody who has questions seems to be attacked as insufficiently supportive of the EAOs and, and the NUG. And maybe that is what happens. I mean, maybe we do see a rapid cascade of collapses as regime troops lose faith and throw down arms. It's one possibility, but it's certainly not the only possibility. Um, it's also possible, and I think you know, maybe that this drags out a little bit, but eventually voices within Napital, within the military, with or without men online, decide that they need to come to the table. But I also still see a third possibility that I don't think people want to acknowledge, which is maybe without men online, some in the military are able to offer maybe a significant degree of autonomy, if that's what it takes, to some of the EAOs to get them back off the field and then refocus on kind of drawing a new line of defense in, in the lowlands, down in the Bamar heartland. And continuing to govern for at least the foreseeable future. That's not what anybody wants. I mean, but is it unrealistic to think that the military could still pull out of this tailspin and govern a much reduced portion of the country from Napidon and Yangon? As always, there's a range of outcomes, and it's difficult to predict with the fog of war, obviously. I mean, it's this is a rapidly changing situation. I would argue that, yeah, the junta's strategy has always been, including before this recent you know, coup in 2021, I mean, in past outbreaks of violence between themselves, the central government and, and ethnic armies, it's always been pick them off one by one. Hey, you can have you know, access to this area and this border and you can you know, draw revenue from it. We'll leave you alone if you just sort of stop fighting us and, and you know, picking off divide and conquer, as I call it in my piece. What I would say is that these groups that have continually engaged the junta 
could have essentially sit, sat out this, this pro initially, especially in 2021, the protest movement. But I, I do think there has been a fundamental sea change in how these groups are assessing the strategic picture. The junta came 2008, right? They said, okay, here's this new constitution, the military, we're going to hand over power to a you know mixed, this democratically elected government, but we'll hold some power and we'll let this go. But, you know, the ethnic minorities feel very aggrieved that they were, that there was no movement, you know, under the Aung San Suu Kyi government towards inclusive, you know, change in, in a more federal uh, union. And especially now they see that the junta cannot be trusted and Min Aung Klein cannot be He's not a reliable actor. I mean, if you to hear it, I mean, most folks see that it's pretty obvious. I think even you know Beijing is is incredibly frustrated with Napidot these days, and I think the ethnic armies don't trust that they won't be next eventually, right? And so I think this time they see it as we need a fundamental shift. However, and this is important, I think that timeline that you mentioned that some folks on the internet would like to see is just not very realistic. I mean, this will take a long time. This is an insurgency. Insurgencies are not overnight affairs. I would not want to put any sort of guess as to how long this lasts. I would, but you know, we're looking at a significant timeline uh, and I don't think the junta is in any place where it wants to give in. It's gone too far. It's sort of, you know, crossed the Rubicon, so to speak. I do think that what is crucial though, and this is important, is the junta won't negotiate, I think, in any sense without, in in good faith, unless it doesn't see the chance of total military victory. And that's important because, unfortunately, I, I would argue that several countries in the region, Thailand, India, China, have their engagements of the last year, especially, have given the junta this belief that it can hold on in you know the center and essentially outlast the PDFs and then deal with the AOs later. But the key here is that as an international community, and I think the United States specifically, should do more to really emphasize with allies and partners like India and Thailand that, hey... This is the only way that we can get out of this spiraling civil war is convincing the junta that it cannot win and that it is, you know, the people have rejected it firmly. It is now there are more EAOs fighting it directly, right? It's, it's continuing to add, not subtract enemies. And, and fundamentally, the economy in Myanmar is just in dire straits. The population is a humanitarian crisis. I mean, this is not going well. And that's, I think, a more likely outcome is that the resistance needs to gain, you know, further battlefield victories, demonstrate it's a reliable coalition that has this political framework. And, and I talk about that in my piece, that there really needs to be a, a political framework here that you can then pitch to actors like China or India or Thailand as this is our vision and, and internally as well with the AOs, right, that we can buy into this. And then from there, I think we can talk about the day after or like a peace settlement, right? I don't think a total, you know, rolling into Napidaw is right now in the foreseeable future. But I do think this is a shift in Operation 1027, in my opinion, is the most important strategic win that, that the resistance has had in the last two and a half years. Lucas, I want to pull on that day after thread a little more. And you talk about the difficulty of this in your piece, as you alluded to. What role do you see for not only regional countries, but also for, you know, more distant partners like the U.S. for that day after scenario, assuming we get there in the next, I don't know, 10, 15 years? So I would say that the U.S. has been quite involved behind the scenes, getting people in the same room and trying to talk and at least coordinate these and facilitate dialogue, right? And, and it's, trust building is a slow thing. And a lot of people in that 
space kind of say, ah, you know, this is a lot of trust building. Like at some point we need to get something concrete. But I do think the international community has, could play that facilitating role through a variety of mechanisms, right? It's publicly working much more openly and saying we see this resistance as a group. It's not just the NUG. I mean, they need to bring in everybody, I, I think. And, and luckily you saw in the Burma Act that the U.S. is now, you know, saying ethnic armed organizations, you can collaborate with them, you can meet with them. You know, it's the National Unity Consultative Council, which is another entity that is attempting to bring everybody together to talk. Because really a day after has to be something that the minority ethnic groups buy into, the youth buy into, and fundamentally regional countries are going to, you know, have to play a role there. I mean, especially with the fact that China has such influence on some of these border ethnic armed organizations, it has to be something that they can all sort of agree on. And in my view, that would have to be a federal system, which is what the minority groups have been calling for for decades, which is essentially more autonomy, less centralization in in the heartland. And additionally, there needs to be, I think the military has, I would say that although from a more outside perspective, a negotiated settlement, oh, you know, maybe the military would have to get some sort of, you know, role still. But I would say that in my conversations with folks, they are just absolutely unwilling to grant the military concessions at this point, just because I think they feel burnt. I mean, right, the military sort of came to them with concessions in 2008 from their perspective and then took it away when they were, they felt like, oh, it's no longer in our interest. And I think that is a severe gap that that we can't cross easily and it's going to be up to folks on the ground to make that decision. But that day after scenario has to have buy-in. And I think that's the key part is it's got to be federal and it's got to be inclusive so that these ethnic groups then feel that they have a stake in the system. And it's not just a Bamar dominated process as it has been in the past. The responses we've heard from Myanmar's immediate neighbors to Operation 1027, to my mind, have been beyond unhelpful. I mean, China's call for a ceasefire and I think forcing the United Wa State Army and the NDAA, the National Democratic Alliance Army, to also call for a ceasefire, that's not that surprising. As you said, they bet on the wrong horse and now they're kind of stuck. India's done the same. And then all of the other nine defense ministers from ASEAN at the ADMM meeting last week called for a ceasefire, which Thailand, at least, and a few others within ASEAN, alongside China and India, have de facto backed the junta for two and a half years. And then the second that there is an, as you say, strategic shift on the battlefield, they call for a ceasefire. I have to assume that the bad blood from opposition forces toward the governments in Delhi and Bangkok, and especially Beijing, is going to last for a while. And that perhaps some of these neighbors aren't appreciating how much they are undercutting their future influence, presumably because they just assumed that it was impossible to imagine any outcome other than the Burmese military winning. And that's exactly right. Uh, I think, I mean, you talk, regular folks are livid and they see the junta as you know fully supported by China, which, again, the picture is much more mixed. China does not love the junta by any means. I mean, they, there's a lot of distrust. And the junta even permitted anti-China protests. Uh, the other day, right? Which is a big, you know, they're, they're, they're upset too. But I do think that there's a narrative in a lot of countries in the region, and you hear this from a lot of folks, basically saying, in quotes, I, I'm doing quotes with my hands, is, you know, the junta is the only force that can hold the country together. And essentially what they mean is they, they buy into the Sitat's narrative that uh, without us, 
Myanmar would fracture into a dozen little statelets and narco states, and this is terrible for you. But I would, I guess, in my view, I would posit to them, and I, I say this when I inter- engage with other you know counterparts, I'll say, well, I mean, but who's the one who caused this recent instability? It's the military, right? I mean, they overthrew the government. They triggered this outbreak of, of instability. They're the catalyst, in my opinion, or the real cause of, of Myanmar's long-term instability is, is fundamentally their actions. And so if you want to solve the instability that everybody agrees is bad, India agrees it's bad, China agrees it's bad, Thailand agrees it's bad, then you, you really do need to address this, this military-dominated government long-term. And I think that, to me, is obvious. But again, I'm an American. You know, it's, it's not my perspective. I would say that making that case is something, you know, back to Alina's point, that the U.S., should do I th- better, I think, with India and Thailand specifically, but also Beijing. I, I know that they, they talk to China about Myanmar. It comes up in statements pretty regularly. Because really making that case that the pro-democracy movement, especially the leadership, is not anti-China. They're not anti-India. If anything, they, they've proven pretty willing to work with China. I mean, they want to, they're, they're not pitching themselves as this sort of American aligned movement. If anything, they're saying, no, China, we would love to work with you, especially in cramping down on these border criminal networks. And, you know, as the Three Brotherhood Alliance has been saying, and that's really key. And and they've they've tried really hard to engage these actors. I just think that narrative is, is really persistent. For instance, I was in New Delhi recently talking about China and Myanmar, and a lot of folks in New Delhi would say, well, we feel burned by previous uprisings against the military that they weren't successful and at the end of the day the long-term bet remains that the military is going to win and and i guess in my view that narrative is persistent but i think i would argue that this is a different situation fundamentally because the bamar people are much more overwhelmingly supportive of the resistance and, and feel really aggrieved against the military i mean there's many people who will say i didn't understand how the ethnic minorities felt until the military turned its guns on us in the last two years. And I think that's really a powerful sentiment. And that is the shift, really, is that this is a much more widespread popular movement than in previous instances. Lucas, thank you so much. This was very interesting. I know that because we're at least 10 minutes over our normal time. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Alina, I appreciate you taking the time to join as well, and especially to the listeners. We are recording this a couple days before Thanksgiving, so I wish all of you listening to it next week a retroactive happy Thanksgiving, and we'll see you for the next episode in a couple of weeks. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you may have. Do us a favor and subscribe. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us. Marla Hiller is our producer, and our interns are Angus Lamb and Corey Donnelly. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Jaffet Kitsan. And I'm Amanda Greenberger. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Don't forget to submit your questions to searadio at csis.org for our upcoming holiday special.